Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 147, Freestyle Awakening. We're joined this week by Dharma teacher Martin Alward to explore what it means to translate the forms of Buddhism to our contemporary culture, creating what Alward calls a freestyle awakening approach. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today, it's kind of a rare treat, joined today over Skype video. And we're recording just the audio portion, but I'm joined today by Martin Alward. Thank you, Martin, for uh, taking the time to speak with me. It's afternoon, your time, morning, my time, but thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's nice to see you, Vince. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. And just a little bit of background so people know kind of where you're coming from. You live in southwest France. Are you a, yeah. a French native? No, no, I'm British originally. You're British, yeah, well, it sounds yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah, it's about 15 years now, though, okay. that we've lived in southwest France. Nice, and you live uh, with your wife and two kids, and interestingly, you live at a Dharma center that you helped found that is called the, the Moulin Center, and it's in the rural area of France, so it's kind of away from the hustle and bustle of the city life, and it's beautiful. I've looked on the website, just amazing, gorgeous pictures of, of this old mill and the river it's just gorgeous yeah yeah and it was a zen center actually a, mo- a monastery for 15 years before we came here about five years ago nice. um, when we moved from our previous place so we arrived in a place that already had like a japanese style meditation hall and bamboo groves and it's been fantastic to, oh that's to perfect come here. Yeah. that's perfect so you do a lot of teaching there year-round various programs and you have a really interesting summer program which we might get into as part of this conversation where lots of different programs happening in a little different style you open it up so that it's not just silent but there are also periods of talking and communication that happen so that's all gonna i think feed into our conversation which is mostly about how the dharma is expressed in the contemporary culture that we live in in the contemporary world in the modern world and there are lots of things that I wanted to explore with you because you're doing a lot of interesting things, including the use of technology. We're using Skype video here, which you also use a lot in your own teachings. But first, before we get into the specifics, I w- kind of wanted to look at the big picture with you because mm-hmm. one of your main interests is in translating the Dharma so that it's relevant for people, so that it's current to our time and place. And I guess the first kind of obvious question that comes up in response to that is, well, why does it need translating? Are the ancient and Asian forms not sufficient? Right. Well, that's a good question. I think it's important to separate the kind of timeless, universal, deep features of awakening from the way that awakening gets expressed, explored, and transmitted. And so those two are two different things. And while you know, when one reads the, the text from two and a half thousand years ago and the Buddha talking about the nature of mind, it's kind of shockingly beautiful how the way he's speaking about the way our minds get caught up 
is just as relevant to me now, two and a half thousand years later, in a completely different social and historical and cultural context as it was then. And yet, our cultural expressions have changed, and the way genders interrelate to each other, and the way money functions in our society, and all that stuff has kind of moved on. And so, that's the bit that needs translating, is how our deepening understanding of our of our life and of life itself gets expressed in our culture gets expressed in our relationships gets expressed in our working lives and our parenting uh, or whatever it might be that we're involved in otherwise we end up with kind of this exploration of mind and awakening as something somehow apart from the rest of our life if we can't find the translation into our current lay, engaged, modern, 21st century technological lives, then how, how's awakening to really liberate all of this, you know, the whole context? Hmm. Before we had this interview, we were talking about how the Asian forms of Buddhism, given that they were taking place in cultures that were so different from ours, really pre-industrial revolution, before a lot of different things had developed here in the West, and given that you were talking about the need to really change the forms because the ancient Asian forms really were not appropriate for our time and place. And I was wondering if you could say maybe expand on that as part of this larger question of what is the appropriate translation of the Dharma. Yeah. Well, even if you look at um, the movement of Buddhist practice within Asia, you know, there's very, very different cultural expressions of that. And so as the Dharma moved historically to different countries, you get a marriage of the kind of essential practice of freedom and awakening with whatever cultural form supports that. That's why Japanese Buddhism, you know, why it looks very different from Tibetan Buddhism, from Burmese Buddhism, etc. Over time, there's, it's hard to separate the practice from the cultural form out of which it emerges. So it's very young. You know, we're only kind of one or two generations into really the beginning of embedding Dharma practice in our culture. And so initially, we tend to look very much to the culture which it's come from. I would guess that just one or two generations into Japanese Buddhism, there was a lot of reference still being made to Chinese Buddhism and to kind of Chinese cultural expression. It takes time, I think, but that's really what's needed for us now, is to start to find, well, what are our cultural expressions of that practice? And I think that's happening very much as well. But there's a certain degree of inertia around it. And like we were exploring before a little, we defer to our teachers. Now, there's an appropriateness around that. We defer to our teachers' wisdom. But our teachers tend to be the old ones who do things their way, who deferred to their teachers, who did things their way. And so, you know, only one or two generations for most practice lineages in the West were already back in Asia one or two generations ago. That's not just the kind of essential practices that we've inherited. We've also, within living memory, inherited a bunch of those cultural forms. And at least within the kind of Theravadan world, which is where my main background is, forms are very predominantly monastic, renunciate, celibate. And we're, most of us, practicing those in lifestyles which are none of those things. 
they're engaged with intimate relationships, with a working life. And so we need to kind of really bring, I think, those things into our practice. How we relate to money has to be part of our practice. What happens around our kind of sexuality, sexual relationships, sexual energy, that has to be part of our practice. And looking to renunciate traditions isn't going to do it. You know, the way they dealt with that in the Theravadan tradition, how do you deal with money? You don't have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. You take a vow to not touch it, not use it, not get involved with it. Well, that's beautiful for a renunciate practice, but it's not much help to us in a 21st century lay practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like as you're describing this, I'm just thinking that as I look around the Western Buddhist landscape, I can see almost the spectrum similar to maybe the political spectrum of conservative and liberal. I see this kind of spectrum of of more innovative, more liberal, more kind of pushing the edge, and then other people that are kind of more connected, more rooted in the tradition and in, in its previous forms. And it, it's such a strange phenomenon, such a wide expression, and yet over time there's a, some sort of movement as well toward more relevant forms like you're talking about of dealing with money of dealing with sex of dealing with technology dealing with the things that are such a part of our lives whether we want them to be or not yeah and i think there's room for all of that you know it's like the thing of pioneers and settlers some more tend towards the pioneering and some more towards the settling so some people would feel maybe uncomfortable in trying to kind of reinvent things and really feel the kind of that there's something somewhere to anchor their heart in something that's got a long tradition to it and established cultural forms. So it's not that that's a wrong thing, but I think at the same time it's important that we recognise that the cutting edge of developing Dharma practice in our culture is the kind of bringing into question those cultural forms and actually being willing to find our own new ways of translating Dharma practice into our culture. And that... It's helpful to look backwards in time for the wisdom and the essential parts, but we really need to look to where we're at and what we're doing and what our lifestyle is for how that translation happens. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, as a teacher, you are both responsible for bringing Dharma to people. And at the same time, it sounds like you're also still learning, like still figuring out how do I practice in a way that makes this more relevant since many of your teachers were could be considered more traditional teachers you spent time in india and things like that so does it feel like that that you're both a teacher and still kind of trying to figure this stuff out as you go yeah very much i mean actually most of my teachers haven't been very traditional even the ones that were were asian which has been a real blessing for me uh, i think uh, ajahn buddhadasa for example who's kind of um, a very revered thai master but he was quite kind of shocking in his untraditionalness. He uh, was completely uninterested in, in statues and wouldn't let there be any in the forest where he lived for many years. I remember often him giving talks to visiting Thai pilgrims and saying, you know, you just stop off here to light incense and use the toilets. He says, you might as well just get off at any toilets rather than come to a monastery. It's pointless you being here unless you're interested in really transforming your heart and mind which was kind of a shocking message. Mm. And I guess my own sort of making it up as I go along or wondering about that really happened after sort of three or four years of pretty intense practice uh, being mostly in Asia for all that time. And then after meeting my wife, Gail, 
she rather quickly in a kind of unorganized and unplanned way became pregnant and our daughter was born at 16 years ago now and we have a 12 year old son as well so having children suddenly whatever model we had which for me had been growing up spiritually within a kind of renunciate asian monastic model you know a lot of my reference points for what real practice was just went out the window and it became very clear to me that dharma practice had to have a much much broader basis than doing meditation retreats that it had to be relational i guess that's the thread that's actually followed through mostly over the last uh, 15 or 16 years is what's relational dharma practice in my life and then you know increasingly then in the lives of uh, my students and people that come to the center and all and that's why a lot of our retreats here at the mula aren't in silence we often have these kind of halves so of silent mornings of formal sitting and walking practice but afternoons that where people are encouraged to kind of work with one another hang out with one another socialize with one another because a lot gets stirred up in the sort of relational field which is different than what's there in being rather solitary and so it's been important to me to kind of include all of that somehow mm. and this kind of flows nicely into this other topic which is something that you call freestyle buddhism and uh, when i first heard it I, I started thinking of you know like a freestyle hip-hop buddhist rapper or something but you mean something different by it and it's it's kind of related to a topic that we've explored a little bit called urban dharma but you differentiate from that and i was wondering if you could say a little bit about what is freestyle buddhism yeah well i think partly i just like the associations like you say with rap the associations of freestyle which just has a kind of you know making it up as you go a sort of dynamic a diy i don't know if you have that term in the states Do you yeah yeah do it yourself yep. associations to it also you know, when i say buddhism i try to remember that bud means awake you know, that's why the buddha was called the buddha right because he was awake and so buddhism means awakeism or awakening and the buddha was a freestyle awakener he practiced with several different teachers and he found a lot of benefit in that and yet he had to make his own way and i think it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater the history and tradition and the accumulated wisdom and skill and precision and care of all those years of a developing tradition are really important and yet actually ultimately we all have to find our own freestyle awakening these universal deeper features of recognizing the nature of mind and yet you know our individual karmas if you like to put it in a kind of traditional language our individual configurations and personal history and different things work for different people at different times and so i think it's kind of tragic we kind of easily get caught in some idea that there's some way that's the best way and we just have to follow that way and i'm always i'm always kind of suspicious of the idea and you know there's lots of claims within the uh, spiritual world and within buddhism uh, as much as anything else so that this way is you know the fastest way or the purest way or the oldest way or that there's something to recommend it as basically being better than other approaches and in a way i think you know if there is only one true way that it's your own way it's your own way through 
of finding what nourishes you in different moments. And sometimes some particular teaching or contact with some teacher or some tradition can be very, very nourishing and rich. And then after some time, one comes to the end of the road with that and you need something else. And I think it's important to have the inner freedom to actually, the what is essential is freedom and awakening, wisdom and compassion. And nobody's got a monopoly on that. So by freestyle awakening, I guess, I mean, you know, that keeping the awakening part really, really central and letting whatever the forms are of that, letting them serve the awakening and not in themselves kind of take over. Because that's what happens, I think, sometimes when there's the mix of the kind of essential practice with the cultural expressions, is that the form, we kind of get comfortable with the form. I mean, even just the form of meditation, you see that. Mm. You know, we start off with some passion for meditation, and we really we sit down and we kind of really connect. And then after a while, we kind of learn how to get comfortable with that. And, oh, yeah, I can sit for half an hour or 40 minutes. My legs don't really cause me too much trouble anymore. And I'm not, there's not too much anxiety or too much restlessness. And so our meditation, it's like the form takes over. And we learn how to do it in a rather comfortable, but actually undynamic, dull way. So freestyle awakening uh, really means it's kind of keeping us on our toes, that we don't just get comfortable or just settled with some form. Mm. And it seems like that kind of approach would also encourage a type of trust of one's own sense of, of the path and one's own kind of intuition about what's needed. That seems like it would really empower the individual practitioner to have a, a more fluid and freestyle approach like that. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think that's really important. I, th- I think it's actually the, the job of an authentic teacher actually, to reflect that kind of trust back to the student. Again, I feel I was very, very lucky in having teachers that really supported that. I remember spending time with one uh, old monk uh, in the Himalayas who, after I'd stayed for several weeks, he just kind of pointed me to the deepest understanding I had at that time and the deepest experiences I'd known at that point. And he said, you know, those are your touchstones. Refer to that. Let yourself be guided by that. And that was very, very helpful to me. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network 
is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.